I'm Aaron Henkin. Welcome to Life in the Balance. We're going to start today's show with some sobering numbers. Baltimore City ended 2018 with 309 homicides. At the time of this taping, 2019 is looking to be equally violent. We've already lost 49 lives to violence. On a recent Thursday in February, 14 people were shot in 24 hours. Here in Baltimore, the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center is the busiest in the country. There are so many gunshot victims there that the Air Force sends medical professionals to train at shock trauma before deploying. In other words, the conditions in Baltimore City maybe not so different from a war zone. What are we doing to address this ongoing crisis? Some say it's time to start looking at gun violence as a public health issue. That's the idea we're exploring on today's show. And we're talking with folks who are on the front lines working in shock trauma in Annapolis and at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. First to join us this hour is David Ross. He is a violence intervention program case manager at the Center for Injury Prevention and Policy, Shock Trauma, University of Maryland Medical Center. David Ross, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Aaron. Let me start by asking you to explain what the Center for Injury Prevention and Policy is, what your goals are, how you operate. Uh, Your organization is actually housed at Shock Trauma, yes? Yes, it is. So uh, CIPP, uh, or the Center for Injury Prevention and Policy, it's an umbrella for a number of programs, um, so particularly uh, the one that I'm under, which is the Violence Intervention Program. So we do um, all preventable work um, for prevention, um, be it um, for fall risk, try to prevent falls, um, violent injuries, um, um, at-risk teens, youth, and so forth. So we try to um, do programming. We do about 1,500 events per year um, to um, put the word out uh, of different ways or avenues we can use to prevent um, um, any type of injury. So it's a big umbrella. It covers yes. everything from, like, be careful not to f- fall down the stairs, mm. to like be alert when you're driving, yes. to yep. specifically the work that you do uh, within that larger organization, which is as a violence intervention case manager. Talk about um, who you spend your time working with um, and what you aim to accomplish. Yeah. So my primary job is to, day to day, is to do bedside intervention with victims um, of patients who come in with uh, uh, intentional violent injuries. So that's your gunshot wounds, stabs, assaults, um, even inter- um, intimate partner violence, which we have our bridge program for that deals um, specifically with individuals who have been assaulted or injured due to um, an intentional violent injury by a partner. Um, But day to day, I see patients at bedside who have been violently injured in some way intentionally and look for ways to uh, support them to reduce um, the chances of them coming back to the hospital again with the same type of injury. Also, um, we do a service plan just to look at um, what are some of the things that the patient themselves believe that would help them to steer clear of something like that happening again. And some of those things are housing, stable housing, employment, uh, education, going back to school to get a degree, um, parole and probation issues. They may have like cases that are out there that are, 
you know, um, haven't been closed or unsettled. Um, and they just don't really know how to maneuver around those things in, in, an, in another way other than what they already know, which is sometimes uh, involving some type of criminal activity or just being caught in the mix of things. So that's what we try to do is try to help to put to, together a plan to look at a variety of other options, more healthier options they can do to try to navigate forward. Talk about what's important about having these conversations when you're having them and where you're having them. Yeah. That particular moment in a person's yeah. life. That moment um, is something that Dr. Carnell Cooper uh, coined as the second golden hour, which is um, the most vulnerable time in, in that patient's life um, while they're, after they were injured. It's crucial, they're most, most vulnerable, where we can go to the bedside and no friends are there, no homeboys, no families, no girlfriends, boyfriends. And it's just me and that individual while they're thinking about their lives. Um, they, Many of them go through a, just thoughts. All, you have, all they have time to do is just lay there and think about, you know, quite honestly, things like do they want to get revenge? Um, they're thinking about bills they need to pay. They're thinking about their children and family members, all of the things that are being left unattended while they're laying in the hospital. Um, they're feeling vulnerable. So we, we talk about their lives and the things that's most important to them in those moments. And usually that's my, one of my first questions after I introduce myself is, what are you thinking about right now? And some of them turn into faucets, you know, where... It's just spelling out, I'm thinking about my mom, I'm thinking about my children, I don't want to go back to jail, I might lose my job. Um, I, I'm I was supposed to start a job this Monday and I got shot, so I, you know, that's down the drain. So things like that, um, and we start there. Say a little bit more about um, some of the backstories of some of these people who are in these hospital beds with gunshot wounds. Um, some of them maybe are innocent victims of random violence. Some of them are guys who are probably, or maybe, some of them are guys who are maybe had a gun of their own and shooting back. Yeah. It, you'd be surprised at the variety of folks you see come in. And, you know, and that's something that I had to learn myself when I started this job is to really walk in without judgment um, as much as you can. I mean, of course, we have inherent biases, you know, but... Uh, when I walk in the room, um, there have been people who, uh, I mean, they have several degrees, you know, in higher education um, and, you know, got caught up in, in maybe uh, they went to a club that weekend or went out drinking and got into a fight. Um, sometimes there are family issues. People, um, you know, of course, we automatically go to poverty and the streets and drug culture, but it's not always that. In many cases, it is, but in other cases, it's, it's just making poor decisions or unhealthy decisions um, that gets, you know, people caught up in that lifestyle. Sometimes it's road rage. Um, folks get out of the car and have a confrontation with someone else, like, again, like at the bar or, um, domestic you know it's living in the same household with another person self-inflicted injuries we don't live with we don't um work with those individuals per se but um they do come across uh, my desk sometimes so many different individual stories but all of those stories in this sort of bigger suspension that is this culture of violence that we live in every day yeah so let me tell you like this so on more than one of occasion, I had a patient when I go to the bedside, and I'm, I'm like, "Well, what happened?" And on more than one occasion, it's been 
said back to me, this is Baltimore. You know, and for a select group of people, whatever background they're from, to have that mindset or that outlook, perspective on the city and like this is just what comes with living here. Um, that's prob that's a problem, you know, that that indicates there's a there's a severe problem here. Um and you know to be able to walk outside so i mean on a regular basis you know we get you know uh not a regular basis let me not say it like that but more often than not there have been instances in and around around our campus where um people have been injured you know so just recently um someone was injured right out in front of the hospital a hospital employee yes yeah yes and you know that's that should be like mind blowing, you know. Um, our entire city should be feeling like this is, you know, this is not normal, you know. But we go about our day because, you know, uh, the murders that take place um, and uh, violent attacks that take place, we hear it at the top of the news, you know. Every morning you turn on the news, and that's what we're seeing before we walk out the door. Um, so because that shouldn't be normal and it's kind of been normalized for us to think that this is just a part of our culture, um, I think there are definitely some things we have to consider, um, just options of how to continue to impact this. And people are trying things. You know, we have um, the Erica Bridgeford doing some amazing work um, and, I mean, many others who are just trying to see what works. I mean, we don't know the answers, but we're trying to figure out what can we do to uh, impact what's been happening in our, in our city? Yeah. Desensitization, resignation, mm -hmm. normalization. I mean, that's it's hard when you get to a point where that's the that's everyone's reaction. Tell me about um, how much time you'll spend have to spend with someone. Um, how long are you a part of their lives? Uh, and that varies as well. Some some of our patients or those who become clients, they need uh, intensive case management. And what that means is from day one, once I meet them, we discuss a service plan. And from that day forth, they may lay down a list of goals they like to achieve. Um, I, I would like to get my GED. Um, I want to move out of the, neighbor the neighborhood I live in, the place where, you know, I got shot. Um, I want uh, to get a decent job. I want to get my children back. Um, I need to clear up, you know, these um, parole and probation issues that I have, Getting uh, maybe get it expunged off of my record. So some of those things take a long time, you know, um, to work toward achieving. Um, others um, may not, other patients or clients may not need as much hand-holding. It may be that one-time visit at the bedside, and they may, may need, guidance on where to go and how to uh, get temporary disability if they need it or, um, you know, uh, how to get insurance or health insurance or um, to someone to call their the job and just say, you know, this is, you know, uh, your employee asked me to call um, to let you know that he's in the hospital right now. And I may not hear from those people again, and they're fine with that. But others, it is a long journey. It, in our program, there's no termination period. It's open-ended. So I've had clients who've been with us 5, 10, 15 years. You're dealing with people who are 
just on the other side of a major physical trauma, they're also, I'm sure, experiencing a profound psychological trauma on account of, you know, whatever sort of just the experience of undergoing that that injury and that 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 violence. I mean, talk about the the repair work that needs to be done mentally and psychologically and emotionally. You know, Aaron, on on many cases I feel like um many of these people have suffered severe and complex traumas even before they got shot or injured. Um they they come in already um hypervigilant and having uh, terrible nightmares and um, I'm not sure if you heard of the um, ACE scores or you know the adverse childhood experience there's a survey um, you can do and the higher the score or um, you 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 know get during on that survey determines um, pretty much how many experiences you had during your childhood that you know impacts your life you know for the amount of trauma trauma that you've experienced over the course of your life impacts your, your longevity um, and, and the chances of you um, dying young early um, or being going to prison, things like that. Um, so many of these people have already, like I had a guy yesterday tell me, um, he, I said, have you ever been injured this severely before? Have you ever been in, in a situation like this before? He said, no, not really. Um, I mean, I've been in fights with bats and stuff like that. I've been hit in the head with a baseball bat, but that's about it. <laughs> you know? That's it, That's he it. Says. You know? Or, I mean, well, they'll say, um, and another guy say, yeah, you know, I've been shot before, but, I mean, that was, like, only with a twenty two. This guy hit me with a forty cal. You know, it, for them to think about it that way, that it wasn't, that wasn't a big deal, you know? Um, and they don't even realize that they've been traumatized, that this shouldn't be a normal way of living. Um, so, you know, in a way, I wonder how infectious it is. We talk about it being a um, a disease. You know, it's, it's an infectious disease, it seems, where it spreads. So we're not only dealing with the primary trauma, we're dealing with folks who are experiencing vicarious trauma or secondary trauma. Um, not only with their family and friends, the person who witnessed um, the, the the violence take place, those who heard it um, down the street, um, you heard someone screaming, and even when they come to us, you know, or first responders are experiencing it, it's not a normal thing for, for human beings to witness or to be a part of. And so even for myself, just to speak for me, when I'm engaging with these folks, the experiences, what they're going through, it affects me as well, and it's ongoing. Um, when the longer I work with them, the closer I get to them, um, a relationship builds. You know, a client, um, you know, a clinician relationship builds between us two. So it's in some ways, it's almost like raising a child. So for an example, I had um, a young guy. I met him when he was. 21 or 22 years old um he had nothing he never had an id never had a job he never um been out of the city he never left west west baltimore really and so i was helping him get all of these things i helped him get his driver's license get behind the wheel of a car for the first time um i was with him we uh, our program gave him his first birthday party he never had a birthday cake we took photos um, we 
we, we took him out on speaking engagements. We got him his first job. We celebrated these milestones with him. And then at the age of 25, he dies. You know, so it's it's um, it's more than just, uh, you know, a job in that way, you know, because, we, you know, they talk about, you know, we have to have create barriers, but you can't create barriers between a human experience, you know, to a certain degree. And so um, it, it, you know, it, those, some of those situations or some of those relationships can, you know, really rock folks. And uh, it, it impacts all of us in a way, even to watch it on the news. Um, I think it, it impacts us. We keep count of how many murders are a year, and it's almost like we're keeping score, you know, um, and, you know, comparing ourselves with others, other cities. You know, um, I don't think that's intentional, but I wonder if there's a different way we can look at that. That idea that violence is infectious I mean, those who have violence uh, perpetrated against them are more likely to end up perpetrating that violence later in their own lives. Um, it's got to be a draining job. It's got to be an exhausting job. What's your stake in this? What motivates you to do this work? I think there are a number of things, um, honestly. Uh I've been to the bedside of two of my relatives um, who who were both shot. Um, one eventually ended up dying. Um, and I have a third relative who was actually a part of our, our program. I made him be a part of, brought him in, made him be a part of our program. Um, I am the pretty much the only male in my family on both sides, my mother maternal and paternal side, who haven't, uh, lucky enough, I've I've never uh, had a, a situation where I had to face the criminal justice system um, or uh, I've never been injured due to a violent act, you know. Um, and when I thought about that one day, I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Like, wh- why am I exempt, you know, thus far anyway from, from these tragedies? What feels like a, a cycle of things or being... A, directly impacted or affected by within my own person um so i feel like there's something that i owe to do that for one um i believe that being a citizen in in this city that i have a responsibility a duty to um try to mitigate you know um or how should i say do my part in in helping to just reduce um the injuries that we're sustaining on on a day-to-day basis here. I have children um, who live in the city and they go to school and they come home. Um, So we're not isolated, you know, at all. I mean, I live in a pretty decent part of the city, but things still happen, you know, in that area too. So um, it's not just West Baltimore. It's not just East Baltimore or North or South. Like this is our whole city, which feels like it's plagued by these things. And, I went to, you know, my wife's family is from North Carolina, um, and I would go down, I would go there sometimes when I first started visiting, and people would slow their cars down and roll the window down and wave to speak. And that was so crazy to me because I don't see that happening in our city, you know. I would really be 
a, a bit on guard at first. Like, what what's that person looking at? And I'm a pretty nice guy, you know, but I thought about it. I was like, man, this is really how much is these things that occur in my city that's affecting me. And because I'm, I'm dealing with the work, the work directly, you know, is it affecting me that much? You know? So I think our mental health is very important, um, to, to take care of, you know, but going back to your question, that is a a part of my state. Like I, I feel it's a responsibility and, um, to work at it in some way, not always in this capacity, but to be able to, um, help those who, who would like to, get help out of the situations they're in. The homicide number is a notorious number, an infamous number, but that number is much smaller than the number of people who survive yeah. violent Shock injuries. trauma does a, an excellent job of putting people back together. <laughs> you know, As tragic as a homicide is, when somebody survives an attempted homicide, there have become so many issues that they have to deal with afterwards. I mean, that yes. just is the beginning of a chain reaction of of so much work that needs to be done. Yeah. So, okay, so let's say, you know, there, for example, if there are 300 homicides a year, I see 1,700 patients wow. who were either shot or stabbed, you know, with, I mean, critical injuries, severe injuries, life-threatening those people are in the hospital, they go to rehab or they go home and it's a new way of life. It's difficult to look at those scars, you know, or you have an 18-year-old kid who's now paraplegic, a quadriplegic, you know, and he's already in many cases poor and don't have resources to get the type of care he needs to get therapy and um, transportation and all of those things. Like, it's it's life-changing, you know, in a lot of ways. So, that stacked upon the the myriad things they they are already dealing with, you know, um, is just unfathomable. So I, I always try to remember to say that when that client told me, he said, you know, what about us, those who survive? They don't talk about us on the news. Um, yeah. And the, I mean, it's a testament to the how good the surgeons are at shock, yeah. at shock trauma. How many people? are able to survive the injuries that they sustain the yeah. the side project the side product of that is that you end up with a lot of people who are surviving who are just incredibly debilitated yeah you're I mean, dealing with people you're talking people through like having recently been given the news that they are never maybe going to walk again yeah yeah and i mean for anyone that would be devastating news but just for an example, you know, just to narrow it down, narrow it down a bit. If you have an eighteen-year-old kid, it was just his life is just beginning. He loves playing sports. He's into, you know, girls, or he's, you know, have dreams and things he wants to do, and he feels like his life is over. It's not. It's a different life, but we have to get him to see that it's a different. You're gonna, you have a new life now. It's gonna be different, you know, and um. It's, it's hard for them to wrap their minds around, you know. You do heavy work, man. I don't know how you do it, uh, <laughs> but keep doing it. Thank you. Thank you. David Ross is a violence intervention program case manager at the Center for Injury Prevention and Policy, Shock Trauma University of Maryland Medical Center. David Ross, thank you for sharing your thank time you. with us. Thank you for having me. 
You're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hinkin. Coming up, we'll talk with Maryland Delegate Brooke Lehrman about policy initiatives and legislation that might be changing the way we approach gun violence in Baltimore City. We'll be right back. I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. Today, we're looking at gun violence, uh, specifically through the lens of public health. And joining us now is Maryland Delegate Brooke Learman. She represents District 46 here in Baltimore City. She's calling us from Annapolis today. Delegate Learman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, um, can you acquaint our listeners with the areas of the city that you serve? Certainly. Um, so I represent District 46. I'm just beginning my second term, and District 46 includes all the neighborhoods around the water, from Highland Town to Federal Hill and Cherry Hill and Fells Point, Patterson Park to Brooklyn and Locust Point. It's incredibly diverse um, and a uh, wonderful district, and I, I feel really honored to serve. You're joining us from Annapolis today, but you live here in the city. You're raising a family in the city. Talk to me about just how serious a problem you see violence as day-to-day in Baltimore. Um, It's our number one problem. You know, I think no matter what neighborhood you live in, violence in the city affects you. Um, You know, we, there are not, you know, walls around our neighborhoods. No, sure, we have them. So what affects us in, you know, what affects somebody in Sandtown affects us in Highland Town. And so we have to make sure that we're working all together to create a safer city. But, you know, the public safety problems we're facing in the city, um, we've been facing for some time now, and they affect every Baltimorean. Um, and, but we also have to remember that some of our red- residents, including some of the children in Baltimore, are witnessing this violence on a daily basis. It's almost become normalized, and that's just wrong. Um, you know, in many of our neighborhoods that are majority African-American, the lack of investment for decades demonstrates itself not only through higher levels of violence, but also in, you know, vacant homes, less access to green space, additional litter, et cetera. And, you know, this violence has physical effects on our kids um, and our residents, long-term effects that sort of changes um, the physiology of their brains and development. Um, And so certainly, you know, we have to be acting with um, incredible urgency to to stop the violence and, and meet the needs of all our residents. Delegate Learman, let me give you a chance to talk about the report that you and a team of yours authored back in 2017, Baltimore Prospers. Sure. So, um, you know, in, in 2017, we'd seen, we'd seen increasing violence for a couple years. And um, Team 46, I work with Senator Bill Ferguson and Delegates Robin Lewis and Luke Klippinger, we um, decided that we needed to put out our ideas. Um, there wasn't a game plan on the table from the mayor's office. Um, and we thought, you know, we need to start the conversation about what we can do to stop the violence and to make our city safer. Um, and so we put together a plan that we called Baltimore Prospers. Um, and it had immediate action steps. You know, here's the investigation and enforcement work that we need to see immediately from an increase in MOCJ uh, work with safe streets. What's MOCJ? um, MOCJ is the uh, mayor's office of criminal justice. At that point, there wasn't even a director. Actually, we don't have a director again right now because ours left. Um, To increasing funding for violence prevention initiatives, working on juvenile crime and juvenile justice issues. And then we talked about, you know, the long-term um, things that we need to do, to do as well um, in terms of investing in neighborhoods and education and ongoing work, um, you know, making sure we're doing criminal justice reform, 
um, investing in our schools and community development. So it was um, intended to be our ideas for working together um, uh, to address the crisis um, and that, you know, to, to do a call, be a call to action, um, to ask our other leaders to step up and to put out their plans and ideas so that we could really work together to address the crisis that our city is facing. It's interesting you talk about uh, the work that uh, can be done to sort of triage the results of violence, but then the longer vision that's required to um, treat the causes of, uh, of violence. And those causes, I, get, I mean, people talk about the cause of gun violence. It's not one cause. It's a, it's a complex web of, mm-hmm. of causes. Talk about, um, you know, what, what, what you can do to get in front of the problem. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I don't think there is one cause, but I, I do think that society and government's failure to believe in every person's potential and help them to reach that potential could be considered a cause. Um, but I, you know, I think I think about um, public safety and violence prevention um, in four tranches, like long-term prevention, short-term prevention, public safety measures, and reducing recidivism. So the long-term prevention is really, you know, investing in education, ending the school-to-prison pipeline, investing in early childhood development. Um, you know, we know that by the age of three, children have 85% of their brain development already, you know, making sure that kids have access to the programming they need. Um, So really starting early and doing that long-term prevention work, um, job access, job training, the the real uh, work that we need to be doing for the long haul. Then there's the short-term prevention. Short-term prevention is programs like Safe Streets, um, public health-oriented, evidence-based gun violence prevention work, um, like Safe Streets, like LEAD, the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program, and other programs like that um, that can really get in front of the problem. The problem may be about to happen, but this can help stop it. You know, programs like Ceasefire. Um, And then there's public safety, and that's about ensuring that we have a police force that's pursuing constitutional community policing and that we have an effective juvenile justice system that's really working with kids um, who maybe commit small violations, but to help them address their situation, figure out what's going on in their lives that's leading them there so that they don't end up coming back over and over again. And then finally, reducing recidivism. If you've had somebody who's had an interaction with the criminal justice system, making sure that, um, that they don't come back, that they land on their feet when they get out, that there's um, there's a safety net there to catch them, that they ha- can access the services that they need, they can get the job training, they have a way to get around, you know, public transit or a car, so that they can go lead productive lives and reach their potential. Um, and so I think those four, we have to think about it in a spectrum, um, and I, I attack it from sort of those four areas. And as a state legislator, your challenge is to take all those uh, moving parts and and pack them into some sort of a smart piece of legislation. (laughs) Talk about your your bill, HB 432, the Public Safety and Violence Prevention Act of 2018. What is this bill? What's included in it? Sure. So this was a bill um, that uh, that tried to work on the um, short-term prevention steps. So When you think of violence through a health lens, the fact that it feeds on itself really makes sense. The more a person is exposed to violence, the more likely they are to be involved in further incidents, either as a victim or a perpetrator. And when violence started increasing in the city um, after um, the unrest in 2015, I started looking at the neighborhoods in the city where there weren't increases in violence. And one of them was in my district, and that's Cherry Hill. And one of the things that I saw in Cherry Hill happening that was so amazing was this incredible safe streets program um, where gun violence, um, you know, gun violence had been reduced 
so much through this, these wonderful workers who were out in the community working with members to stop violence and also just making sure that residents had resources that they were um, that they could get a hold of. So. I um, started looking into gun looking into safe streets, um, talking with the folks at Cure Violence, which is an organization that helps oversee safe streets and that modeled it actually, um, to think about how we could replicate programs like safe streets to make sure that there was funding available um, for these uh, violence pre prevention initiatives that were really working. You know, we can't police ourselves to safety, um, but we have to make sure that. And we have to make sure there's long-term investments in our schools and communities, but we have to also ensure that we're funding evidence-based programs to prevent violence before it begins. By changing community norms, identifying and working with those at greatest risk of violence, and interrupting the exposure. You know, how can we decrease gun violence for good? So this bill, um, for the very first time, um, will dedicate is dedicating state funding to that evidence-based gun violence prevention work. Now, we're one of only five states in the country that are funding, um, you know, at a multi-million dollar level, these programs. So I'm, I'm really excited to start seeing it come, come into its own, and we'll see seeing these programs begin to multiply and have an effect. Has this bill, House Bill 432, officially passed? What's its status? It did. So it passed, and the governor signed it, um, and it was funded last year, uh, or this fiscal year, at $5 million dollars. Um, the city applied for and received about $3 million um, to expand its Safe Streets programs. Um, unfortunately, the city hasn't actually put that to use yet, but they can, and I look forward to seeing Safe Streets expand around the city. Um, the bill also had several direct grant programs to the city, um, including to expand LEAD, the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program, um, which ensures that when officers interact with addicts, they can get them into drug treatment rather than hauling them off to jail. Um, and that is just in one area of the city right now, but that model is successful, and so we're hoping to expand it to other neighborhoods as well. And that's something I'm working with um, Councilman Cohen on and um, OSI and other community partners. Considering the challenge that the city is up against in terms of uh, stemming violence, uh, do you see reason for optimism? Um, talk yeah. to talk to your citizens, your uh, constituents here who are frustrated, discouraged by the violence in their communities. What, what, what can they be doing? What can we be doing as individuals to, to make a difference? Um, yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I think, yes, please be optimistic. Please stay engaged. Um, you know, every day I talk to people who want more and want better and are willing to do the work to make their neighborhoods better. Um, I know I'm not the only one who is optimistic. We can have we have tough days, but I love Baltimore because I love Baltimoreans. We're resilient and determined people. So I feel really lucky to have found my way here, and and I know that our best days are ahead of us. And that's because of the people in the city. You know, democracy is responsive, so I encourage people to engage, contact your elected officials, tell your story, get engaged with your community association, volunteer with organizations like Thread. Um, go to your community relations council meetings and introduce yourself to your major. Um, and, you know, just don't complain just on Facebook. Really get involved because it's through uh, the amazing, you know, Baltimoreans are an amazing group of people. And I know that um, when all of us stick together and keep working hard um, to break down barriers in our city, there's real cause for optimism. That is Maryland Delegate Brooke Learman joining us on the phone from Annapolis. She represents District 46 here in Baltimore City. And Delegate Learman, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
You're tuned to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. Coming up, we're joined by one of the nation's leading firearm policy experts. We're talking violence prevention as a public health issue, its causes, its consequences, and what can be done to stem the tide. We'll be right back. I'm Aaron Henkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance, where we're talking about gun violence through the lens of public health. This hour, gun violence is being called an epidemic, and here to talk about why is Daniel Webster. Dr. Webster is Bloomberg Professor of American Health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And uh, Dr. Webster, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you. Let me start, Dr. Webster, uh, by uh, having you introduce yourself to our listeners. I understand uh, you've been working on this issue of gun violence for about 30 years, uh, and you worked in the field of uh, public health and policy for just about as long. That's right. Yes. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, as you said, and um, I had a brief career, if you will, as a social worker, uh, working with a lot of families involved in violence and mental health issues, uh, but came to Johns Hopkins uh, to, to further my public health training. And at that time, the most critical public health um, problem facing uh, Baltimore was gun violence. And I redirected my course to uh, to develop an, uh, a body of research and a line of work that really, uh, in my mind, centers on the most important public health challenge for Baltimore and many cities. Let me just start with you with a definition of public health. I mean, what does that term mean and what's your broader definition of public health? Well, well public health course is is how healthy are our commun- communities. Uh, I think what is unique about public health, because we most common we think about our individual health and what we can do to keep our own self healthy and safe, and we you know do that in part through our, be- uh, our healthy behaviors and, and going to the doctor. Public health really thinks about this, not only each individual, but it thinks about communities and what are the conditions in communities that create health and safety? Um, Do we have safe uh, and healthy food to eat? Uh, Is our water safe? Um, All of those really basic things. And of course, um, guns and gun violence are are pretty central when you start to think about the set of conditions that affect our health and safety as a community. So I think what's unique about public health, again, is this community lens and thinking about what systems, in essence, create the set of conditions that lead some communities to be safe and some not safe? How do we how do we address those systems so that um, we correct those things that are creating these unhealthy, unsafe conditions? And I think that's sort of the fundamentals, in my view, of what public health means. You hear people ask over and over again, what's the cause of gun violence? What's the reason for gun violence in Baltimore? Um, but that cause, as you say, is, a, is an amalgam of many factors. Talk about that tangle of issues that can that contribute to the problem. Well, I, I don't think it would be a shock to anyone to understand that uh, a core root cause has to do with inequalities, much of that uh, based upon race. And that is baked into what our city looks like and our, uh, the, what housing looks like, what um, the shape of our schools why we have the um, kind of law enforcement system that we have. I think all of those things are important in thinking about what determines 
levels of, of violence. And I think there there's something that is very fundamental here that gets to um, financial insecurities, right? Um, we have individuals engaged in incredibly risky activities um, that they probably wouldn't be doing if they were in more stable, safe financial situations. And uh, we have to think about those systems, okay? Part of that is our schools. Our schools have been adequately funded and and, uh, not addressing the needs to make people prepared to compete in a 21st century economy. Our law enforcement enforcement system has uh, sort of over-incarcerated, given more people criminal records, hindered people rather than helped people. So I think that those are some of our key um, set of conditions that that are underlie what's important in gun violence. The last thing that I will say, people always talk about the underground underground drug economy, which is very important. I do think it's important to recognize that alcohol is actually the equally important drug that often plays a role in in violence, including gun violence. So there are a lot of factors that intersect with things that we think about in public health, all of those, all of those systems. I remember, I had to have been about maybe 15 years ago, we had a Baltimore health commissioner by the name of Dr. Peter Bielenson who uh, sort of flexed his department's political muscles at one point and declared uh, gun violence to be a public health emergency. And if I remember correctly, he made it illegal for gun shops to sell ammunition. Do you remember that? I remember what uh, Dr. Bielenson did. Actually, I know Peter quite well, and uh, we were actually advising to some degree on that. What was actually going on there, aside from... uh, ammunition being sold at gun shops, which, frankly, there are hardly any gun shops in Baltimore City. But at that time, what was going on was there were local hardware stores and other uh, stores of that nature that were selling ammunition uh, and sometimes by the bullet, including to underage youth. Uh, so that is something that the local health department, uh, under Dr. Bielinson's leadership, went in and cracked down on and uh, stopped that pretty quickly. Three decades of work on this issue, three decades of study. What's changed over those years when it comes to gun violence? What hasn't changed? Are we moving in the right direction? Is there reason for optimism? Are we stuck? Are we moving <laughs> backwards? Well, things changed. We were having a lot of progress, a fair amount of progress anyway, uh, from the years roughly 2007 to 2012. Um, Gun violence was generally going down. Um, Things changed dramatically uh, following the civil unrest after Freddie Gray's death. And um, there have been there's been a little fluctuation over that time, but in, in my from from my vantage point, I think uh, we still are at um, a, a new and unhealthy norm now of very high rates of violence. So the question then is sort of how do we get back first to where we were before and hopefully even lower than that. Um, what I think we have learned over a span, we, we 
have analyzed data over 15, most recent 15 years, for example. And what we learned from that is uh, focused law enforcement. The more focus it is on the violent offenders and violent offenders with guns, um, we have had the most progress in, in driving uh, violence down. When our law enforcement has been more diffuse and sort of blunt force, if you will, with a lot of just a lot of drug arrest, a lot of um, car stops, and and e even even if you're pulling in more guns, if it's not focused on risky people, the riskiest people, your impact is much less. I don't know if that makes sense, but so much of you know a true public health approach is is. Uh, risk-driven approaches. And the overarching lessons learned is the more we are focused on the riskiest individuals and the riskiest behaviors, that being illegal gun possession, um, the, the greater uh, our impact has been. The other, the other thing I think that was important when we were doing better, in essence, uh, on gun violence is we were having greater success in closing cases, uh, making arrests, prosecuting people who uh, carried out acts of gun violence. We've gone in the other direction in recent years. So I think fundamentally, it sort of sounds sort of weird as a public health person to say, well, we need to put murderers behind bars. But in order for safe streets, for example, to be effective, um, there has to be some reasonable deterrent for the most dangerous people that there will be a consequence so that when you do those behavioral interventions, people are going to be re more responsive because they don't want to go to jail. So right now, I, I, I think, uh, again, the lessons learned are safe streets can be most effective when police are also effective on the most violent individuals with the most risky behaviors, those being connected to guns. We've been speaking with Daniel Webster, Bloomberg Professor of American Health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Webster, thank you for your insights. Thanks for having me. We are going to get ready to wrap up our program this hour, and as we do, we're going to give the last word to our first guest. David Ross, who you'll remember works as a violence intervention program case manager at Shock Trauma. Uh, David Ross is also a talented, longtime spoken word artist in Baltimore. He recorded a piece with us inspired by his work at Shock Trauma. A young boy wears a bullet on a chain around his neck. With each step, it beats against his chest. Right foot, left, right foot, left. The bullet pretending to penetrate his flesh with every step comes the invitation to death. So tempted to snatch his young, sweet breath, so young, so fresh, so naive to him, life is still make-believe. He dons his chain as a badge of honor to show how brave he is against this wicked world, proving how tough he can be. But what he fails to see is that you don't play games with her because death is into long-term relationships and he's too young to be making commitments. It was written, yet he continues to chase the forbidden, taking his bite out of the rotten fruit that has already been bitten many, many times before him. But see, this is why death adores him. His own family and community ignores him. 
And what breaks my heart is the fact that we all play a part in his young, impressionable life. We close our eyes and ears and pretend we can't hear his cries for help. We say, that's not my child. Every man to himself. It's a doggy dog world. And I got my own kids to worry about. Let that menace be somebody else's problem. But yo, he is our problem. This little boy is wearing a bullet on a chain. He's got murder on the brain. Flesh filled with pain about to sign his little life over to death. And you, I mean us, we don't care enough. This is a walking time bomb and you're calling him bluff. Wake up. Right foot. Left, right foot, left. Last night, an eight-year-old boy took a bullet to the chest because his friend, Ten, shot him over some Pokemon cards and a girl named Karen, Eleven, and not one but three young lives destroyed, vanquished the result, pain and anguish and baffled looks on adult faces like, oh, no, and why and how, but it's too late now. All the wild businesses still send out publications as well as radio stations for peace and unity and stop the violence rallies to amp up their publicity ratings naturally. All the while, the murder rate continues to tally. I don't know. Ask them. They got Parker Brothers beats playing deadly cop games on your street. You got these R&B stars and these, these rap artists endorsing, endorsing poison for free, endorsing expensive clothes for free, endorsing Glocks and Techs, Nons, Millimax, alcohol, promiscuous sex, what seems to be at no fee. But there is a price, and that price is your baby's life. It's sad to say, but today our young people can't even outlive mice. Well, I guess not if they determine their self-worth by the retail of cars, clothes, and jewelry. Right, a little boy is wearing a bullet on a chain. A little boy is wearing a bullet on a platinum chain. Death is coming around the corner like a runaway train. And this kid is strapped to the tracks as we turn our backs. Inside, he's yelling for help while we only think of ourselves. It's just not fair. Will you help save him or will you help keep him there? Right foot, left, right foot, breath. This bullet is hungry for his young, sweet flesh. God bless. Will you save him? Will you save him? Or will you deliver him to death? Spoken word from David Ross as we wrap up our program today. Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The program airs at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. on the first Wednesday of every month. The show is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can find episodes online at wypr.org slash podcast central. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.